Jared, very much. Turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Preaching off green paper this morning, bright green paper. It was just in the uh, office printer. That's how it came out, so I'm going to roll with it. We are talking about the transfiguration, so if I start to like shine brightly, um, it's the paper. Nothing strange is happening. I've always loved the mountains, and it's been said that some people are mountain people and some people are beach people. How many of you are mountain people? At least half the crowd. That makes the rest of you beach people. Beach people, raise your hand. Some of you aren't sure. You're kind of both. Uh, I'm too hairy to be a beach person, so I'm a mountain person. And uh, one of the reasons I love the mountains is they hold a, a certain spiritual significance for me as well. My, my first time in the mountains was when I was 15 years old. I had just become a Christian, and I went to camp with my church. We camped near Leadville, Colorado, and that was a week that changed my life. The speakers, the worship, the intense you know, camp experience. I, I look at that week as a spiritual mile marker, and, and, and it's a week I look back on even to this day. And I would return to Colorado each year of high school, and each time I returned, a, a different mile marker would be established. And then, as a youth pastor, I also made it a point to take students to the mountains. And I did that in hopes that spiritual milestones would be set up in, in their lives. And I realize that you don't need the Rockies to have God work in your life. But for me, at least, there's just something about being in the mountains that tunes me into the power of and presence of God. And it's not that he's somehow more present there than he is here, but in some way, I become more present there than I do here. And those moments of retreat have often made me more open to how God might be at work in my life. And I bring up the mountains because our text for this morning is a mountaintop experience. And it's one that was specifically designed to minister to, to encourage three of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John. Uh, Jesus is seeking to give his disciples assurance. Because you remember, at the end of chapter 8, he has just given them some startling news. He's revealed to them that because of his Messiahship, because he is the anointed king of Israel, because of the mission that God has for him, he must suffer, and he must die. Jesus asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter rightly answered, You are the Christ. And Jesus follows that up by informing the group that that, that is fundamental to his messiahship. Fundamental to his messiahship is for him to be handed over to the chief priests and then handed over to the Romans and to be killed. That's what lies ahead. And this news of his death was the most startling news imaginable for the disciples. They did not have a category for a suffering Messiah. So the news that Jesus was going to suffer, it didn't hit them so much with sadness. It was more rage. They, They didn't understand. They didn't have the mental framework for a king on a cross. And not only that, this news meant that they were going to have to suffer as well. That if Jesus was going to the cross, they might have to go to the cross too. 
which is exactly what Jesus tells them. He says in chapter 8, verse 35, to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross and follow me. He says, to save your life, you have to lose it, and to find your life, you cannot keep it. As disciples of the Messiah, they thought, and, and, and Peter specifically thought, that they were about to gain the whole world. That Christ was going to ascend and take his rightful place on the throne where he would rule and reign over the whole world, where he would make his enemies a footstool. And so they're thinking as his closest companions that they'd be given power and prestige and honor as well. They've seen him walk on water and feed multitudes, and they've seen him raise the dead. They would want for nothing once Jesus established the kingdom. They would probably even get to rule with him. They would, in the language of the passage, gain the whole world. But Jesus says, no, you get to take up your cross. So about a week after giving this primer on discipleship, this command to save their lives by losing their lives, Jesus takes three of them up on a mountain and provides for them a milestone event. That's our text for today. Mark chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading in verse 2. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. So the first half of verse 2, I think it sets the scene pretty well. Jesus takes his inner circle away from the rest of the group. This is Peter, James, and John. He singles these three disciples out on four different occasions in the book of Mark. This is probably the most significant of those occasions. And so he takes these three up on the mountain. The text says a high mountain, which the highest mountain in the region would have been Mount Hermon. Its peak was between nine and 10,000 feet. It was just north of Caesarea Philippi, which is the area in which um, they had been in the previous passage. So if I had to guess, I'd say they'd gone up Mount Hermon, or at least one of the mountains surrounding Mount Hermon. And if you've read the Bible much, you know that it's not uncommon for God to do miraculous 
revelatory things on a mountain. It was on Mount Moriah that God manifested his grace to Abraham when Abraham was willing to offer up his son Isaac. It was on Mount Sinai that God handed down his law to Moses. It was Mount Nebo that Moses would assent to view the land of Canaan, a land that he would never enter because God would take his life there on Mount Nebo. It was on Mount Carmel that God demonstrated his power to Israel through Elijah the prophet. It was from a mount that Jesus would preach his longest recorded sermon, Matthew 5-7. through 7. It was on Mount Calvary that Jesus died for our sins on the cross. It was from the Mount of Olives that Jesus ascended back into his heavenly glory. It was that same, or it will be, that same Mount of Olives that he will return to when he returns in glory. So it's not just my experience with mountains. The Bible situates many of its key events on mountains. And make no mistake, what takes place here in chapter 9 is absolutely pivotal to the gospel story. Remember, I've told you in recent weeks that Peter's confession of Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that's the continental divide of Mark's gospel. Everything that has occurred uh, in, in the book's first eight chapters leads to that confession, and then everything that follows in the second half of the book leads to the cross. So we're starting the second half, and this is an event that points us very specifically to the cross of Jesus Christ. And you'll see why as we unpack it together. What we see here in the transfiguration are at least four truths revealed about Jesus Christ. I know there's no notes in your bulletin this morning, but there is going to be an outline on the screen behind me. You can write these down or just keep up as they, as they come to you. So four truths revealed about Jesus Christ. First, the radiant glory of Jesus Christ. Second, the absolute preeminence of Jesus Christ. Third, the divine authority of Jesus Christ. And then fourth, the necessary suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, the radiant glory of Jesus. Mark, in really the most understated manner, he tells us the unimaginable. Look at the second half of verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. That's it. No adjectives, no adverbial phrases, nothing. Just, and he was transfigured before him, before them. The word for transfigured is the word metamorpho. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis. And it's basically a word that means a change on the outside that comes from the inside. Okay, a change on the outside that comes from the inside. This is a word I've become very familiar with in recent weeks because, as you know, I have two nine-year-olds. And my nine-year-olds just so happen to be in Terry Zander's fourth grade class. Terry's a member of our church, and Mrs. Zander is a wonderful teacher. From what I've heard, Miss Zander is a wonderful teacher too, but I'm talking about Mrs. Zander. And Mrs. Zander would tell you that her favorite subject to teach is science, and how her science teaching skills have impacted my life in the last couple of weeks is that I've had two little girls in my house collecting bugs for their bug collections. So every day for three weeks, they head out to the backyard with plastic cups so they can go on a bug hunt. And for several weeks, my freezer has been filling up with dead bugs. 
We've got everything from bumblebees to crickets to cicadas to grasshoppers to butterflies to a bunch of stuff I can't even identify. And one of the ongoing features of the fourth grade bug unit is learning about caterpillars. And as you well know, the coolest thing about caterpillars is that they don't stay caterpillars. They change. They transform into butterflies. And expert bug hunters that my girls have become, they've caught a couple of monarch caterpillars, and they've taken them to school. And in the past week, these caterpillars have formed chrysalises. So in a short time, monarch butterflies are going to emerge from these chrysalises, and the class is going to get to watch the whole process Unfold. Here's a picture of what that process might look like from caterpillar to butterfly. And I think one of the things we love about butterflies isn't, isn't just that they're graceful and beautiful. We love butterflies because they come to be as a result of this miraculous transformation. It really is stunning, isn't it? But the truth is, caterpillars don't really become something different. They just reveal what they really are. Inside, every caterpillar is a butterfly, and that's, and that's all that's required to see a metamorphosis. That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus has unveiled his glory. His humanity has been veiling his glorious deity. And so on this mountain, before these three disciples, he has transfigured and revealed his glory. And Mark understates it a bit, but at the same time, Mark was a Jew. And he was connecting this scene in our passage with one of the most powerful scenes from the Old Testament. He was letting this connection carry the weight of his point. And the connection is found in Exodus 33. Exodus 33, Moses is in the middle of leading the children of Israel, out of slavery. They've been in slavery to the Egyptians. He's leading them out. He's been on Mount Sinai. Again, he's on a mountain, and God has given him the commandments and the law. And and Aaron, Aaron sins down below. He sins by worshiping the golden calf. And Moses is, is unsure that God is really going to be faithful to this stiff-necked, rebellious people. Moses sees no reason for God to be faithful to them. And so he goes to God, and he's begging for reassurance. And in doing that, he begs God to show him his glory. I don't know if you remember how the Lord responds, but I'm going to read it from Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. This is how the Lord responds. Remember, he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock because he's going to pass by him. Verse 5 of 34. The Lord descended in the cloud. Sound familiar? Connects us with this passage. And stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. The story goes on and the covenant is renewed and God expresses how he's going to be faithful to this this people. 
And if you jump ahead from that scene to the end of chapter 30, 34, when, when Moses comes down from the mountain, the text says that his face is shining with the glory of God. So much so that the people are afraid of him. So you have a people that are afraid of the secondary glory that Moses brought down with him from the mountain. Just imagine, therefore, the dread of the people if he would have brought the primary glory down. If it had been the true glory of the Lord that appeared before them and not just some residue left on the face of Moses. Imagine that scene. Well, that's what these disciples are getting. The primary of glory, the primary glory of Jesus is being made manifest in front of them, and it's so radiant that it's spilling over onto his clothes. It's causing his, his garments to glow, and they're glowing in a way that's not earthly. This is made clear in the passage. It, it's a heavenly glowing. It's a heavenly glory. This description, as brief as it is, is trying to convey that we can't imagine just how glorious Jesus is. He's beyond our terms and categories. He is glorious, infinitely glorious. There is no degree to his glory. It's just glory. It's the definition of glory. Bible commentator uh, Matthew Henry, he says, The Lord's presence is infinite, his brightness unsupportable, his majesty awful, his dominion boundless, and his sovereignty incontestable. All those different angles are showing up here as he's revealing, displaying his transfigured glory. And I like that Mark is brief in his description. As, as we've said in our study of the book of Mark, Mark's source material for the gospel is from Peter. Peter no doubt struggled to explain the, the glory of this scene. Peter wrote in his second epistle about this scene, verse excuse me, chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, he said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John, at the start of his gospel, writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. John's referring to this, this occasion on the mountain. Jesus is showing himself to these disciples, and this whole scene is for them. It's for them. He's showing the disciples that he is the glory of God in human form. The author of Hebrews puts it like this, Hebrews 1.3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. This is for them because remember, these disciples are really bent out of shape because Jesus has told them that he must suffer and die. And with that news, they no doubt wonder if he really is the Messiah. So he takes them on the mount and assures them that he is the Messiah. And even more, let's go to that second point, the absolute preeminence of Jesus Christ. As this is taking place, two Old Testament saints show up. Moses and Elijah appear. And the text says that Moses and Elijah, they are talking with Jesus, which Mark just mentions that so casually, as if the reader won't want to know what on earth these three might be talking about. And I can actually tell you what they're talking about. And you might say, well, how do you know what they're saying? Because it's in the Bible. And I only know, really know what's in the Bible. God doesn't speak to me audibly. He doesn't 
you know, quietly talk to me in the recesses of my heart. I've, I've never had a vision. I married a vision, but I've never had a vision. Um, yeah. But it's in the Bible. Listen to what it says. Luke 9. This is, this is Luke's record of this passage. Luke records this scene. He says, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. And they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what's the subject? His death. His death. They're talking about his death. I told you the second half of the book of Mark was going to focus on the cross. Even the focus of Moses and Elijah is the cross. And I suppose the disciples might have thought they would be talking about the kingdom and the overthrow of the Romans and the establishment of the Messiah's throne over the whole earth, but they're not. They're they're talking about his death because that's what the transfiguration event is intended to communicate, that Jesus has to die. That the Messiah has to die. And that that reality that he has to die, it does not negate his glory. It does not short-circuit God's plan, but it's all a part of God's plan to save a people for himself. Acts 10.43, all the law, all the prophets bear witness of Jesus. There was no lawgiver like Moses. There was no prophet like Elijah. Moses gave the law. Elijah was the law's greatest guardian. Here are the most trustworthy eyewitnesses that these disciples could conceive of. No one could bring the apostles more assurance that the death of Jesus was in the plan than to hear it from Moses and Elijah, the very pillars of the Old Testament faith. So what grace God has given these disciples to have Moses and Elijah there confirming what Jesus has been telling them. But it actually confused the disciples. The presence of Moses led them to believe that that a new exodus was at hand, that, that God had brought Moses back to lead them out of captivity, just as he had done before, and that God sent Elijah to be the forerunner of the Messiah. All the pieces were aligning in the minds of the disciples which leads to the first expressed misunderstanding that we see in the passage. A couple of misunderstandings. This is the first one. It, of course, comes from Peter. He says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here, which is a perfectly acceptable thing to say. But here's where he goes off the rails. Let us put up three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And the verse following, for he did not know what to say. And there you go. If you don't know what to say, just don't say anything. If you're terrified and not sure how to respond, just keep your mouth closed. But what's running through his mind is the problem he has with suffering. Peter's not giving up on this. He's a tenacious guy. So his suggestion is this. Hey, let's end all this right here. We'll make the tents, and we'll go right into the kingdom. Moses and Elijah, they're talking about the cross. Peter interrupts their conversation. He wants to establish the earthly kingdom. Peter's wanted the kingdom from the start. His excitement is heightened by what he sees in this this event. He hates the idea of death. He knows Elijah's supposed to come at the end. We read about that in Malachi 3 and 4. And not only that... The timing of this transfiguration event 
It's in the month of Tishri. So it's six months before Passover when Jesus will go to Jerusalem and die. And in the month of Tishri, a special event was happening right at this time. It was an event happening in Jerusalem. It was one of the feast events. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what did that feast commemorate? It commemorated God leading the Exodus out of Egypt. This is perfect timing. This is the time we commemorate Exodus. This is what Peter's thinking. What a great time to have our Exodus right now. We've got Moses, we've got Elijah, we've got Jesus in glory. Let's just have the Exodus out of this life and out of this bondage and move into the glorious kingdom. Let's launch it now. Forget the death, forget the suffering. It's the same stuff. This is the same stuff that Peter was saying when he got rebuked by Jesus. When, when Jesus had to say, hey, Peter, get behind me. I, I don't want to look at you. The same kind of rebuke. Which leads to our third point. The divine authority of Jesus Christ. Amazing. Verse 7. Then a cloud formed. Then a voice came out of the cloud. Here's a third witness. Moses is one, Elijah is two. Here's the third witness. This is my beloved son. And here comes the father's testimony. He says this, listen to him. Listen to him. In other words, shut your mouth, Peter. A very direct rebuke. He's been rebuked by Jesus in chapter 8, and now he gets rebuked by God himself. Listen, listen, listen to what? Listen to what he has to say about his death. The kingdom will come in its time. Listen to what he has to say about his death. The transfiguration is a glimpse of glory, but its main point was that the greater glory would come later. But the cross, the cross was now. When the disciples heard the voice Matthew 17, 6 says, They fell face down to the ground and they were terrified. And Jesus came to them and he touched them and he says, Get up, don't be afraid. And if you go to Mark, back to Mark 8, verse, or excuse me, Mark 9, verse 8, it says, And all at once they looked around, saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. The preview of the kingdom is gone. The kingdom's not going to come. The only one left is Jesus. And he's not in that glorious form anymore. It's just Jesus alone. And he's on the road to the cross. And the disciples, really, they have no choice but to follow. Which leads to the fourth glorious truth from this transfiguration event. The necessary suffering of Jesus Christ. We'll do this quickly. Jesus gives a command to silence in verse 9. This is the last time he will tell the disciples or anybody else to tell no one about him. He's done that several times in the book of Mark. This is the last time he'll do this. He says, tell no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. There it is again. The cross and the resurrection. These things are always clearly in view for Jesus. They are preoccupying his every word and his every deed. But notice, notice the disciples again. They question what it means. This is the second place that they speak in the passage and what they say, again, reveals that they still don't understand. I can say that because the word used for questioning is actually a more intense verb that means seized. They seized upon what this meant, which means they didn't like it. 
They seized upon it. So they questioned Jesus about Elijah in verse 11. And this is a question that reveals doubt in the disciples. They are so caught up in a kingdom without a cross that they refer to the teaching of the scribes. And since they just saw Elijah on the mount, they ask a question about him. And they ask this question as a way of saying, you know, surely the kingdom's at hand. We just saw him. We just saw Elijah. But Jesus reminds them of less popular prophecies. Prophecies say, prophecies that say that the Son of Man must suffer. Prophecies like Isaiah 53 and, and Psalm 22. He reminds them of those suffering the passages. And in doing this, he connects another figure with Elijah, who's not actually Elijah, but one who has come in the spirit of Elijah. That's what we see him doing in verse 13. He's letting them know that Elijah has already come in the prophet John the Baptist. When John came, he was put to death. Remember Herod and his wife, Herod, who had John beheaded at his birthday party? Remember that? The implication here is that just as John the Baptist was treated, so the Son of Man would be treated. The forerunner died, the Savior will die. So that's the only way he could be the Savior, is if he died. Sin separates us from God. Sin's penalty is death. Jesus paid the penalty so we'd no longer be separated from God. That's the gospel. I hope you praise God for the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nowhere in the gospel record can his glory and his identity be seen any clearer. He is the fulfillment of everything Moses and Elijah and all the law and all the prophets said or wrote. He brings that fulfillment to us. He brings the actual white, hot, glorious presence of God to our lives. He illuminates our lives. He transforms us. There's a metamorphosis that takes place in us when we trust in Jesus Christ. We become what we really are, people created in God's image, made to shine forth that image. If you know you need to be changed this morning, if you know you need transformation, go to the mountain. See Jesus for who he is. See him in in all of his glory. Recognize his commitment to go to the cross for you. And then lay hold of what he accomplished at the cross by transferring your trust away from morality, away from success, away from church attendance, and put your trust in Jesus Christ. You will not be transformed. You will not be saved by any other means. You need the glorious salvation of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus does here is so important and so meaningful. He puts his suffering alongside glory in a way that they cannot be separated. The disciples were thinking only glory, only reigning, only kingdom. Jesus is thinking, yeah, that too, but cross, redemption, reconciliation, atonement, justification, Everything my people need to be saved by me will take place at the cross. He can't help but continually bring it into view. So get ready, because in the next half of this study, we're going to be talking about the cross a lot.
This is a fitting way then to come to the Lord's table. The Lord's table does the same thing the transfiguration does. It fixes our attention not just on the divinity of Jesus Christ, but on the cross of Jesus Christ. And yes, you you should come to the table with confession on your mind. But confession of sin doesn't just fix our attention on on, on our own ugliness. Confession of sin makes us gaze at the cross. That's the point. Reconciling broken relationships that doesn't focus on, on who's to blame, but on the blameless Savior who died in the place of all of us. So don't gather at this table as if you could make yourself worthy of it. The person who takes this meal rightly fully recognizes that they're not worthy of it and takes it with the grace and the humility that the, that the meal itself contains. If you come to this in grace, you manage to get more grace out of it. If you come to it in the flesh, you condemn that very flesh. So before we move into our time of communion, please know that that we practice open communion here at Enid MB Church, which means you need not be a member of our church to take communion. If you're visiting, we want you to celebrate this supper with us. However, This meal that we're about to enjoy isn't just for anybody. It's for believers in Christ. It's for those who have experienced the grace of God through faith in Christ. So that's our one qualifier this morning, faith in Jesus Christ. And I ask the deacons to go ahead and come on forward, or those that are serving the Lord's table to us, or those musicians that are coming to to play over us, And how we'll do this is 